0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. For most artists, it would be enough to have one signature hit, one all-time great, like this one. And if you didn't just sing it, you also wrote and produced it. I mean, that would be pretty extraordinary. In this case, for that song, the extraordinary talent in question is, of course, Smokey Robinson, the former frontman of the miracles and Motown legend, who is my guest this week. And Smokey didn't just write, record and produce one All time great hits song. He is responsible for a pile of the greatest pop hits of the 20th century Tears of a a Clown. I second that emotion.
0: Uh, uh, but if you feel like loving me, then you got the motion. I second that emotion. So if you feel like giving me a lifetime of devotion, I second that emotion uh, maybe...
1: Cruising. more. Smokey Robinson is now 83 years old. He is still recording, still writing. Earlier this year, he released a new album, Gasms. Yes, that's the title. And yes, it is about what that title would suggest, sex. And we should be clear that we will talk a little bit about sex and use some sexual terminology in this interview, so if you or someone you're listening with is sensitive to that kind of thing, there's your warning. For everyone else, honestly, I bet you can't wait to hear Smokey Robinson talk about all that and about a lot more, so let's get into it. Here's the single from GASM's The Way You Make Me Feel.
0: You make me feel like everything.
1: Roggie Robinson, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thank you very much. And congratulations on this very horny new album. All right. (laughs) That's a good description. Thank you. (laughs) Did you have like a a list of types of records you could make? And one said like a dance record... One said, uh, <laughs> and then just one of them said, "Horny record?" Question <laughs> mark, like on a whiteboard
2: in your office. No I, no, I did not have a list. I guess, I guess, he only thought there was the horny one. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have a list.
1: <laughs> was it a goal to make something that was um, that was not what people might expect from you?
2: Yeah, it was. I, I wanted to be controversial. I wanted to get that attention from the first drop. You know, people hear that word gasms and. Um, uh, normally, when you hear gasms, the first thought that comes to your mind is orgasm. You know, so well, I sort yeah, 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 exactly. Smoky,
1: I yeah, would well, never I'm, think uh, of something that dirty.
2: I, I know you wouldn't, but I'm just <laughs> <I'm someone> about <laughs> the average person. I'm a public radio host, but, yeah, sir. Exactly. You know, how dare I say something? I've like never that. known the touch of a woman. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah, I wanted the controversy, and 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 see when people when they hear it, they're going to know that gasms is any good feeling you might have. You know, I looked it up before I continued with writing the song. I started writing the song, and I said, wait a minute, I better, I better check this out for myself. So I looked up the word, and um, and it was cool. But now it gives people a chance to make up their own minds as to what their orgasm is when they hear it.
1: Now, I'm so grateful to have you here. And, you know, I heard your publicist discussing your schedule getting out to promote this record. And the thought that I had was... Look, you're in front of me with your leg crossed. You are live and healthy, but you don't have to be working
2: this hard. So why are you? Because I love my job. You know, I tried uh, retiring at one point in my life. And maybe uh, when I tried the retirement, I was too young to even think about retiring at that point but uh, I was just retiring from the outer edges of show business from being on stage and performing and doing those things like that or recording and all that because I was vice president of Motown and I figured I'd just do that for the rest of my life you know just because, because I had been on the road man since I was 16 with the miracles you know and we had done everything a group could possibly do two or three times and we've been all over the world and all that and uh when we first started out, uh, there was a girl in the group who was my ex-wife, Claudette. In fact, today is her birthday. <laughs> and, uh, and so she was in the group. And uh, after a couple of years or so of marriage, we decided we want to have some babies. And we had seven miscarriages due to the fact that she was on the road and the road is hard, you know. So anyway, she came off the road and blah, blah, blah. And we finally had my my oldest son and my daughter and when my kids were born, man, that really was a trigger for me. I just wanted to, hey, I I, I want to be my kids, you know, and, and, and I and I got a job, you know, something like that. So I told the guys I was gonna retire. And um they laughed at me because uh, you know, we had been together since we were like eleven years old. We grew up together and all that. So they laughed at me because they knew how much I loved show business, how much I loved being with them on stage and all that, you know. So they just laughed at me and left. <laughs> so anyway, uh and then um Prior to that time, uh, in 1967, man, Stevie Wonder had given me a track, and he came, we, we used to have Motown Christmas parties annually, every year, and all the artists were there, and um, so Stevie comes up to me, he says, hey man, I got this music on this track, and it's a great track, he said, I just recorded this track, it's a great track, but I can't think of a song to go with this track, so why don't you listen to this, see what you can come up with, I said, okay man, so he gave it to me, so I took it home, and I listened to it, and the first thing that I heard, or the the intro was, bum bum bum, but da dun 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 dun, which is Ringling Brothers. That's Barnum and Bailey, baby. <laughs> you know, so I said, okay, I'm gonna write something about the circus uh, for this track, you know. And then I thought about it. I said, well, it's circus, you know, I, I, if I'm gonna write about the circus, I want to write something that's personal, something that's you know, like heart wrenching or something. And so I thought about it. And when I was a kid, when I was in elementary school one of our teachers, told the story of Pagliacci. And uh, till this moment, right now, I don't know if Pagliacci was real or if he was just mythical. But anyway, the story of Pagliacci. Pagliacci was the Italian clown who was the headliner of the circus. People came to the circus to see Pagliacci. The animals and the tightrope walkers and all those people, everything was secondary to Pagliacci. They loved Pagliacci, and when he came on, they roared and they screamed and they, you know, more and more, everything. So he was the man. He went back to his dressing room, and he cried because he didn't have that kind of admiration from a woman. You know, he was womanless. So I said, okay, I'm gonna write about Pagliacci, but I'm gonna make it personal. So, Tears of a Clown, we put it on this album in 1967. And in 1970, a young lady who worked for Motown in England was listening to that album, and that cut came on. And there was a guy named Peter who ran the office in England at the time. And she said, Peter, I want you to hear this song. So they heard Tears of a Clown, and they put it out in England. Now, Motown, we had never had a number one record in England ever, the record goes up and it goes to number one. So then it starts to spread out all over the world. I had another record ready to come out in the in the States, and Barry said, no, 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 man, we're gonna put out Tears of a Clown, which we did. To this day, Tears of a Clown is the biggest selling single I've ever been connected to, okay? It was just all over the world, you know? So the guys came to me and they said, hey man, you are definitely not retiring now, you know, because we got the best work we ever had, blah, blah, blah. Our money is gonna soar, which it did, you know, blah. So I said, okay, I'll go for another year, which I did. I went for another year and then I retired and I just would go to the office every day. And I was, I was you know, doing my vice president thing and it was great at first, man, because it was a, a change. And I was going there and when I was in Detroit, uh, my office was originally uh, designed to induct new talent. And that's what I did in Detroit, you know. Move out to LA, and Barry tells me, say, okay man, he say, you're my best friend, I trust you more than anybody. You're gonna be the financial office. All the checks are gonna come through you, you're gonna sign all the payroll checks, with the exception of the, the, the payment for the records. That's gonna go through the sales like it always is. Uh, I'm, oh, this is great, man. So, <laughs> you should see my signature now. I mean,
1: that's our mm-hmm. dream, that's everyone's <laughs> dream, Smokey, is to sign payroll checks. <laughs> Like finally, I'm uh, finally for, for I'm <laughs> finally I don't have to play arenas anymore. I can yeah, get yeah, yeah. back Ex- to exa- the
2: exactly, man. Because my my kids were babies, man, and I would go home every day and see them, you know. And um, so I, I'm doing that, and uh, and after about two and a half years, I found myself miserable. I was absolutely miserable, but I'm hiding it, and I'm not going to show it to my wife because she's going to. Say, well, golly, you just came off the road. You're here with the, us and the kids and the blah, 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 and you see us every day and so on. So. And she would be disappointed. I'm not going to tell Barry because he's my best friend. He's, he trusts me to do this job and all that, you know, so I'm not going to tell him. I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm just going to suffer in silence, you know. And I think that's what I'm doing. And one day, after about three years or so, Barry came to my office and he said, hey, man, he said, I want you to do something for me. I said, what, man? I'm thinking he's gonna tell me something corporate. Let's go have a meeting with, us, so on and so forth. Oh, go try to get this, because I bought some publishing companies and stuff like that to merge them in. Uh, you go go do something like that. He says, no, he said, sit down, man. I sat down he said, I need you to do something. I said, what? He said to me, he said, I want you to get a band and I want you to go in the studio and make a record and I want you to get the F out of here. <laughs> I said, what, man? What'd you say to me? He said, you heard me, man. I said, I want you to get a band. <laughs> I want you to go to the studio and make a record. I want you to get that out of here. I said, what are you talking about, man? He said, man, I see you coming in here every day, and you're miserable. He said, you think you're hiding it from me, but you're my best friend. I know you, man. He said, you are miserable. And when I see you miserable, it makes me miserable. And I don't want to be miserable, so I need you to get that out of my face. <laughs> so I just hugged him, man. Because it was a it was a godsend. It was a god day because I I wanted so bad. I during the, before that day, I would go to little clubs, man, and see anybody, just to see somebody on stage. I was suffering, and I didn't want anybody to know it, but he knew it, <laughs> you know. So uh, then I so I was, I was very happy, man. I went home and I wrote a song with my with my sister, Quiet Storm, and I recorded Quiet Storm album, and it you know. It was my debut back into show business and back into doing what I love. And with the feeling that I got from not doing it, I don't want that feeling anymore. So I'm going to be the George Burns of this this end of show business, man, because I can't find anything that I love like this.
1: We've got so much more to get into with the great Smokey Robinson. When we come back from a break, we will talk about one of his greatest influences, the legendary Jackie Wilson. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm Laura House. And I'm Annabelle Gurwitch, and
1: sometimes it feels like the whole world is a dumpster fire. Right? There's too much to worry about. That's why we make Tiny Victories. It's a 15-minute podcast where we celebrate our minor accomplishments and fleeting joys. And listeners call in, like Valerie, who
0: found the perfect gift for her daughter's boyfriend, and Adam, who finally turned his couch cushion the right way.
2: And little happinesses, like how Birdsong helps your brain.
0: That's science!
1: So join us in Not Freaking Out for 15 minutes a week. That's Tiny
2: Victories with Annabelle and Laura, Mondays on Maximum Fun. Woo! It's a tiny victory just to make a network promo. Honestly.
1: Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Smokey Robinson. He was, of course, the frontman of the miracles, a legendary singer, songwriter, and producer. I mean, the word legendary is a cliche, but I can't come up with a better one for Smokey Robinson. This is the man behind Tears of a Clown. I second that emotion and many, 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 many more. His new album came out earlier this year. It's a concept record about love and intimacy called Gasms. Let's get back into my conversation with Smokey Robinson. It took me a long time after I had kids to feel like I felt comfortable slowing down to their speed. Yeah. Like I was—because among other things, like having kids makes you feel scared if you're the breadwinner in your family. Yeah. It it makes you feel scared that you're not going to be able to put the pieces together right to support your family and blah, 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 blah. But— that energy, that like drive forward is in opposition to sitting on the floor and putting blocks together with somebody.
2: Yeah, I I was more afraid that my kids wouldn't know me, man. See, I was more afraid of that because the miracles and I were gone 90% of the time, 80% of the time we were gone. So I was afraid that my kids wouldn't know me and I had waited so long for them and I didn't want them not to know me. And I wanted to be there when they said their first words and when they took their first steps and all that. You know, I wanted to see that because we, you know, we tried so hard, and um, so I, I, I was I was more concerned about my kids not knowing me and not feeling, okay, here's dad, you know, rather than I come in the house and say, oh, can I have your autograph or <laughs> something, you know what I mean? So, but anyway, um, I, I tried the retirement. It just did not work for me, and uh, like I said, I can't find anything that fulfills me, like doing concerts and recording and doing the things that I do pertaining to Entertaining.
1: I mean, you n- never stopped not just performing, but writing songs like you wrote a volume of songs that c- can't come from the kind of person who's waiting for inspiration to strike. You wrote songs like it was your job because it was. And that's not something everybody can do. Like not everybody can sit down and be like, all right, circus. I'm going to write a circus song, (laughs) you know what I mean? (laughs) And then write a truly great song, you know what I mean?
2: But it's my love. It's my love. I write all the time. And um, I am a firm believer that God gives everybody gifts. Everybody. I don't care what your conditions are, whatever. You got a gift. And some people never discover their gifts. Some people never pursue them. Some people find them and squander them. Some people do it. But everybody gets one. And I think that one of the gifts that he gave me was to write songs because I'm not a songwriter who needs to isolate myself or go away for two or three months and so I can just write and and do that like that, you know, and uh, I I don't function like that. You could say something during this interview that might trigger something in me to, to write a song, man, because that's how it happens for me. I can be, you know, in my car and see a billboard or read something in the paper or online or something, you know, that triggers something in me that wants to write a song about that. So uh, I, and I've always been that way. I don't, I don't need certain conditions to write or, and and people ask me, anytime, well, what comes first, the words or the, or the, or the music? Yes.
1: <laughs> I, I mean, when you, when you were a kid, you were a songwriting nerd, Yeah, which is like a pretty unusual way to follow the music industry when you're, 10 years old yeah, <laughs> or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. Like looking at liner notes mm-hmm. and what have you?
2: Yeah, I wrote my first song that anybody ever heard other than my mom and me when I was six for a school play. And so I've been, I've been trying to write poems and songs and all, all my life that I can remember. It's just a part of me is what I do. And, um, and like I said, I can't find anything that I, that I love more than this.
1: What songs did you admire when you were a
2: kid? Oh man, are you kidding me? I mean, like I not, had, ju-
1: not I, just records,
2: no, no, but no, like no, songs. No. Well, see, I'm a person, I, I was very blessed, man. I grew up in a home where there was always music. I mean, of every kind. I had a great dose of music growing up because my mom played the blues. I mean, the Gut Bucket Blues, Muddy Waters, B.B. B. King, Lil Walter, you know people like that, John Lee Hooker. And play, and then some days she played the Five Blind Boys and the volunteers and the Ward Singers and people who gospel. And then some days, for two or three days in a row, my mom would just listen to Beethoven and Bach and Chopin and people like that. So I was hearing that. Then I had two older sisters. My youngest sister was 14 when I was born. So they were way older than me, you know what I mean? And they played Dizzy Gillespie and Count Basie and Duke Ellington and Patty Page and Sarah Vaughn and Frank Sinatra and people like that, you know? So they had their music and they played some music like when they Dizzy Gillespie, they call that bebop and they played that. So I heard every kind of music you can think of. And
1: really. there must've been a lot of doo-wop and stuff on the street as well.
2: Uh, well, there was, I was about to get to that. When I got on enough, When I was like 10 or whatever, and I decided I would have my own people that I was a fan of, you know, and I wanted to buy my own records and people like that. I mean, things like that. Okay, Jackie Wilson was my number one singing idol. Sam Cooke, Ray Charles, Frankie Lyman, Nolan Strong. These were the guys that I loved and I listened to and I bought their music and I emulated them trying to sing, you know what I mean? So um, uh, I've always had a great love and a great dose of music
1: what uh, let's talk about jackie wilson for a second okay <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've i've heard you talk about jackie wilson before
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you do not sing like jackie wilson
2: no no one did
1: <laughs> that's fair right so like jackie wilson really changed the way people sang you know S- sam cook and jackie wilson in particular really mm-hmm. changed the way people sang mm-hmm. Jackie Wilson was a big performer. Yes. Did you want to just rip it like
2: Jackie Wilson could? Uh, of course I did. I, I I would have walked 10 miles to see Jackie Wilson perform, man. Jackie was, you know, I tell everybody, uh, Michael Jackson. When I first met Michael Jackson, he was 10 years old. He came to Berry's house with his brothers and he came to do the audition before they were signed to Motown. And Michael Jackson, well, after I saw him, I called him Jackie Brown because he was a cross between Jackie Wilson and James Brown. And I mean, he had them down pat. He was 10 years old he was kicking butt. You know what I mean? He He was just dynamic, but he was a cross between Jackie Wilson and James Brown. So Jackie Wilson was dynamic. You know, Jackie Wilson was one of those performers, man. You go see Jackie Wilson. And as soon as he come out on stage, he didn't even have to say a word, and chicks were falling out. <laughs> you know? So he was that kind of performer, and he was a great entertainer. So, uh, yeah, I, I loved him, and he was a great example of, of what I thought a guy in show business should be.
1: Did you think that you should go out on stage and scream and do the splits? Because that's not what your career ended up I, I, being, no, right?
2: No, 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 I, I didn't necessarily think I should scream, because I've always been a soft singer. So I didn't necessarily think I, I I should scream, but I did wish that I could do the splits and all that. I'm not a dancer. <laughs> you know what I mean, in fact, uh, uh, we had a choreographer at Motown uh, at our uh, artist development school, and uh, his name was Charlie Atkins. And Charlie had been a vaudeville dancer with the guy who ran the Apollo Theater, a guy named Honey Coles, and they were vaudeville dancers, Coles and Atkins. You know, but he came to be our choreographer at Motown, and he used to tell me when we went to rehearsal, boy. I'm so glad you're the lead singer so I don't have to try to show you these steps <laughs> because, because you cannot do it. <laughs> so so I'm not a dancer. So I knew another inspiration for me as far as being on stage was when I first saw Frankie Lyman and the teenagers. Now, they were more inspiration for me than anybody I'd ever seen up to that point, including Jackie Wilson, because they were my age, you know. I went to see them there was a theater in Detroit where the talent came to it called the Broadway Capitol they were playing at the Broadway Capitol and I go see them and here I'm I'm like 14 you know and they come out on stage and they're 14 15 and like that and I'm watching them and they were dynamic and they were doing the splits and bouncing each other off their heads and the, you know so that made me think I'd like to do that <laughs> but I you know I just don't have the dancing skills to pull that off did you
1: think that you could be a singer as great as those great singers that you admired? Or were you thinking, I'm going to write songs my way into this? <laughs> you know what I mean?
2: No, I, I, I was just thinking, can we make a record? It was, we just wanted to make a record. You know, just we make a record and be on the radio and that stuff like that. I wasn't thinking about being in competition with Sam or Jackie or Frankie or... Ray or any, I wasn't thinking about being in competition with them, you know. I just want to make a record.
1: Because there was, you know? you know, I read this piece that uh, my producers, bless them, dug up for me that was an ancient Robert Christgau piece about you from the, like, I don't know, it seemed like it was around 1970, 1975. And he used a word, you know, he's not always dead on about soul and R&B, he was, he was a rock guy, but, like, he used a word that I thought was really telling and insightful, which was he described your performances as modest. Uh. And not modest in a diminishing way, Mm -hmm. not like modest as opposed to great, but there is always a reserve in the way that you sing. There is always a sort of like personal, almost like conversational quality to your performances, even in a song that's big, like Tears of a Clown, that's huge feelings. Like there's that kind of almost like a casual intimacy, you know what I mean? And that's a different thing from those people that you're talking about, even Sam Cooke.
2: Well, thank you, I appreciate that. I I appreciate that because it gives me an identity. See, I'm I'm glad that I have my own identity. I'm glad that I have my own, whatever it is that is my own, as far as being a singer. I, I don't necessarily, especially at this point in my life or for many, 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 many years, I wasn't trying to emulate any of those singers after I became professional. You met
1: Barry Gordy auditioning for Jackie Wilson's management, right? Yes. So what was he doing there?
2: Barry, uh, when I met him, man, he was just a songwriter, a record producer. Uh, He uh, had written all of the hit songs for Jackie Wilson up to that point. And that day, I tell everybody it was a God day, because it was, because he didn't have to be there the day that we went to audition, but he was. And we didn't have to go on the day when he was there, but we were. And he was there because he had some new songs for Jackie. Among them was Lonely Teardrops. So he was there. He was just going to wait till we got through. And I thought he was waiting to audition because he looked so young. Like I was 16 and Barry looked like he was no more than 18 or 19. You know, he was 10 years older than me, but he looked like he was 18 or 19. I thought he was waiting to audition, you know. And he's just sitting there listening. And um, so he liked a couple of my songs because we sang five songs that I had written rather than some songs that were currently popular thinking that it would be an asset, thinking that they would say, oh, these kids got their own material. Yeah, we love them. We'll sign them. They didn't like us at all because we were like the platters. You know, the platters were the number one group in the world at that time. And they had Zola Taylor, who was the the girl in the group. We had a girl in our group. And Tony sang hi and I sang hi. And they told us, they said, you guys will never make it. You know, because we already got the platters. We don't need another platters. So you'll never make it. That's what they told us. We can't use you. Meantime, Barry's sitting there and he heard a couple of my songs that we sang that he liked and he came out after. We walked out of there, dejected and stopped us and he and I struck up a conversation. He wanted to know where we got the songs from and I told him I'd written them and he said, you got any more songs? He shouldn't have said that because I had a loose-leaf notebook with a hundred songs in it about, man.
1: Did you have uh, that Did you have uh, that Big Ten notebook like, in I your sure hand? I sure
2: did, sure did, man. I carried it everywhere. Do you still have it? Uh, no, I, man, are you kidding me? See, that's one of the things when people say, do you have any regrets? Yeah, I regret that I don't have that book because that would be invaluable right now. You know, all the scrub songs and stuff like that that I had in there that didn't make sense until uh, Barry started to mentor me into writing songs and so on and so on and made, made them coordinate within themselves. But uh, but yeah, I wish I had that. There there's, there's, uh, there's another regret that I have as far as keeping stuff like that is uh, the fact that When we first started Motown, we had been in business for probably about maybe a year or so like that. And there were places in Detroit, whereas if you were black, you didn't go to those places. You didn't go to Dearborn. You didn't go to Gross Point. You didn't go to Bloomfield Hills. You didn't go to those places like that if you were black, unless you had something on you that said you worked for somebody over there. Because if police saw you over there, they were going to either arrest you or whoop you, you know, just for being black, (laughs) you know. We started to get letters from the white kids in those areas. We got your music. We love your music. Our parents don't know that we have it though, because if they did, they might make us throw it away so we won't tell them, but we got them. Those letters would be priceless at this point. We didn't think the same because we were young. We would just move around. Oh, this is great. We're getting these letters and just put them on the desk. We all know, know what happened to them. You know what I mean? Years or so after that, we get letters from the parents. We found out our kids were listening to your music. We were curious to see what they were listening to. We love your music. We're glad they had it. Blah, blah, blah. You could not put a price on those. You couldn't, you know? So, yeah, I, 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 I wish that I had kept some of that stuff, that notebook with those songs in it and so on. I wish that I had kept that. But once you start moving along and you're finally doing what your wildest, most impossible dream is, because I never dared to dream that I would actually be in show business for real. I grew up in the hood, and I grew up where there were thousand singers, you know, and we used to have group battles and things like that. I never thought I'd be one of the ones who would come out of that and have a career in show business. I was afraid to think that, you know, but I did, and I was blessed to get that, you know, so I cherish it.
1: I want to ask you about you and Barry Gordy in the beginning. You mentioned that he mentored you. The thing that ties all the great Motown records together to my ear, the ones that you wrote, you know, there were a number of amazing hit writing, songwriting groups at at Motown. The thing that ties them all together is this kind of plain clarity. Like each song is an idea distilled. And I get the impression that that is the thing that Barry Gordy brought to you, that he said, look, you're talented. Let's figure out how to focus these songs, distill these songs to the simplest thing, the clearest thing that means something.
2: Well, uh, yeah, he did. what he did with me was to make me realize that a song is a complete idea within itself. When I first met Barry, I, we, we sang two songs at that audition. And uh, one of them turned out to be the flip side of our very first record. It was a song called My Mama Done Told Me, and it was intact. You know what I mean? Most of my songs at that time, from, like I said, from the time I was four and five years old, I could write poems and I could rhyme stuff. I'll give you an example. My first verse is, Oh, my darling, I love you so much. I'm so glad we're here together. I'm holding you. There's nothing like being here with you, and we should always be like this. Be all rhymed up. Okay. Second verse, Oh, baby, when are you coming back? I haven't seen you in 10 years. I miss you so much. I want you to be with me. Blah, 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 blah. But it's all rhymed up. Not it had nothing to do with the first verse, you know what I'm saying? So, Finally, after I've sung about 20 songs to bury that day, he said, hey, man, he said, let me tell you something. He said, a song has got to be a short book or a short movie or a short play or something that the beginning and the middle and the ending tie in together with one idea and one purpose. Go home, listen to the radio, see what they're writing. And, and I'd been listening to Gershwin and, Shope and, and 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 Cohen and people like that all my life. Because, like I said, I grew up in a house where all those people were being played. And they were songwriters. They were songwriters, man. They, they To show you how much they were songwriters, their music is just as popular today as it was when it originally came out. They were songwriters. So that's what I want to be. I want to write a song that if I had written it 50 years before now, it would have meant something. Today, it's going to mean something. 50 years from now, it's going to mean something. I tell people all the time, I want to be like Beethoven, man. They're still playing Beethoven's music after 500 years. You know? So if I can, I'd like to accomplish that.
1: I want to give you an example, right? So you co-wrote The Way You Do the Things You Do, which is one of the Great pop records of the century, like a thank you. <laughs> you know, it's like a perfect song, right? And there's this story, and I don't even. I, it's probably apocryphal. I don't know if it is or not. I don't know how real it is. That like when that song got handed in, the, and the Temps got it in their hand, they were like, "Wow, love so bright, you could have been a candle. This is too stupid to record."
2: <laughs> That's what Otis felt. Oh, you know, Otis, yeah. is the, Otis is the founder of that group. We, Otis and I just talked about that about a month ago. But that's how he felt. But the, what I mean by
1: bringing that up is that, you know, there is no, like, trying to be cute and clever in that. It, yeah. is, it is so straightforward and so clear. And its beauty comes from that kind of simplicity, that kind of clarity.
2: Well, thank you very much. Yeah, because uh, I my thoughts on the way you do the things you do. I actually started writing that in the car. I was driving the car; it was my turn to drive, and we were on our way back to Detroit after we had been on a tour. And uh, everyone was asleep, and I was thinking about the temptations because I had talked to them before we left town, and they were saying, "Well, we're never going to get a hit and all that, you know." And Barry's going to fire us and other. I told them, "No, no. Once you sign with Motown, man, we we work with you till you can get a hit, if possible." But anyway, and so we're on the way back home and I'm thinking about them. And I had a nickname for them. I used to call them the five deacons because this this area that we're in right now, if I had brought David and Eddie and Paul and Melvin and Otis in this room right here and said, hey man, sing ooh, and they said, ooh, they would have shook this room. That's how tight their harmony was and how gospel it sounded you know what i mean so i said i want to write something for them where they can display that part of themselves so that's why i wrote the way you do things you do because of it you got a smile so brightness and singing all that together you know for that reason And I wanted it to be ear-catching. Like you asked me about gasms, you know, earlier. I wanted it to be ear-catching. So it was a, sort of like a, a little fancy, you guys, were, I was surprised, you know, you could have been a candle. You know? But that's, that's ear-catching. Now, what, what, what is he saying? What, what do you mean? You get it. So that's what I wanted it to be. And um, at the time, we used to have contests. At Motown for records. Uh, every Monday morning we had a meeting in Barry's office that started at 9 o'clock. If you got there at you you're locked out. And uh, all of the creative people were there. No salespeople, no anybody else, just the writers and the producers. And if you had a song and you had written it, say, for the Supremes, and they liked it, you were free to record it on them, okay? It didn't matter that Holland Dozier Holland had the last five number one records on them. If you had a song and they liked it, you could record it on them, okay? And then you bring it to the meeting and we sat there and critiqued each other's music to make it better. We're all competing against each other now, but when you hear somebody's music, you say, oh man, if you had done so-and-so and -and so-and-so, that would have been much better. I'll give you an example. Tracks of My Tears. I take the Tracks of My Tears to the meeting. I've just finished completing the recording and stuff like that. I take it to the meeting. There's a passage in the tracks of my Tears in between. It's sort of like a lead in between the verses. I need you, need you, need you. So now I take it in, and I have ended the record with that. I need you, need you, need you. And everybody listened to it, and when it got through playing, Barry and Brian Holland of Holland Doge Holland said, Man, what are you doing? I said, Well, what do you mean? What am I doing?' I said, you think that's a hit? A, it could be, but what are you, what are you doing? I said, what are you talking about? What am I doing? They said, you got one of the best courses in the world. Take a good look at my face, and, my, and you're gonna end the song with I need you, I need you, rather than with that course. Go back. End it with the course. So I did. I went back and re-recorded it and ended it with the course. But that's what we did at those meetings. Brian Holland had some music that he wanted to do, Barry had some, you know. But we helped each other, even though we were in competition with each other, we still critiqued positively everyone's music.
0: So take a good look at my face You'll see my smile looks out of place If you look closer, it's easy to trace the tracks of mine
1: I want to ask you about one of my favorite, in fact, I might even say my favorite of your solo songs. And it's one from, you know, your, your solo career had periods where you were really trying to figure out how to reach audiences. Yeah. And this was from one of them. It was from before Quiet Storm. It's a song that you wrote with your sister called Virgin Man ah. that was a single And like I was thinking of it because of the level of horniness in your new record, (laughs) but it also very sincerely is like one of my favorite songs of yours of all time, and I'm I want to play a little bit of it uh, for the audience who might not be familiar with it. in your well into your 30s when you wrote and recorded this song mm-hmm. stakes were relatively high for your solo career right you didn't know quiet storm was coming down the road and that you were about to you know have a revival and, and invent an entire new genre of music <laughs> but like this is a weird song to have written and released as a single Smokey. Yeah. and again i love this song
2: thank you um, at at the time, I wrote Virgin man. No, man. I wasn't back in show business. I wrote that because um, uh, at the time, I retired. And I retired with the thought in my mind to never, ever be on stage again, to never, ever go into the studio and record a song on myself. I was going to write for some other people and produce some other records and stuff like that. Maybe, but I was just going to be the vice president and do what I did and blah, blah, blah. And I wasn't going to be on the outer edges of show business ever again. So in retiring from the miracles, I wrote a song called Sweet Harmony. And I wrote that to the miracles. I didn't intend for anyone in the world to hear that except the miracles. I was going to make a copy for each one of them and give it to them as a keepsake. The song says, Sweet Harmony, go on and blow on. Even though I'm not there, you can make it you' you're just that talented you don't need me to make it so go on you got a great career still ahead of you and so on so forth that's what the song is about
0: make the world aware that you're still going strong gone. spread your joy around the world spread your joy
2: So I'm going to record it and give the Miracles each their copy.
1: Just because you love them.
2: Just because I love them. Okay. So I did. And um, Suzanne DePass, who was one of our top people at Motown, she was our a director at the time. And she heard it. And she said, Smoke, she said, the world should hear this song. I said, no, babe. I said, I just want the Miracles to hear. It's just something. I'm, I, I'm out of show business. I don't want to. She said, no, 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 man. She said, the world should know that you feel like this about the miracles. The world should hear this. Because most groups make up negatively. Something's going to happen negative and they, you negative. Know, she said, the world should know that you feel like this. And this the world should hear this. So I kept saying that, but she finally convinced me. So I said, oh, okay, go ahead, release it. So she releases it, and she comes back to me about a week later and says, you know we need an album <laughs> to go with this record. Because albums are what's happening now, you know. I said an album. <laughs> she said, "Yeah." I said, "I told you, I'm not doing it anyway." She convinced me. I, I, I made an album, and on that album, uh, my guitarist, who is who is passed on now, a guy named Marv Tarpaulin, who was the source of so many songs for me, so many popular songs for me, he was still with the Miracles, and he called me, and he said, "Hey man," he said, "I'm leaving the group." He said, "I want to come out to Los Angeles and be with you. and Let's just write some songs." I said, okay, cool. So in the meantime, he and his girlfriend had started this song called Baby Come Close. He bought that, and he let me hear it. It was so beautiful. And uh, I I, I took it, and I, I, I finished it up and wrote some words, and I recorded it. And so we put the album out, and it becomes like a mild hit. I'm not looking to get a hit. I don't even want that. You know what I'm saying? But here it is, you know. So that was the reason that I recorded those albums that had Virgin Man on it. We have to go to a quick break. More with Smokey
1: Robinson when we come back. Don't go anywhere. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR.
0: Are you tired of being picked on for only wanting to talk about your cat at parties? Do you feel as though your friends don't understand the depth of love you have for your guinea pig? When you look around a room of people, do you wonder if they know sloths only have to eat one leaf a month? Have you ever dumped someone for saying they're just not an animal person? Us too. She's Alexis B. Preston. She's Ella McLeod. And we host Comfort Creatures, the show where you can't talk about your pets too much. Animal trivia is our love language And dragons are just as real as dinosaurs. Tune in to Comfort Creatures every Thursday on Maximum
2: Fun.
1: Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Smokey Robinson, the legendary Motown singer-songwriter and producer. He's created dozens of chart-topping hits. He has a new solo album out called Gasms. Let's get back into our conversation. Look, I'm going to go ahead and stipulate that you're a very good-looking man, famously good-looking man. You don't have to say anything about that. You don't have (laughs) to say anything about (laughs) it. I'm just letting you know, okay, right? And you have been a a hit maker for a long time. You very well could have just been cutting records about how—look, if not macho, like you weren't going to sing any songs about beating anybody up, but like— how you were the king of love or something. You know what I mean? (laughs) And you've written so many love songs and so often they are about being a little scared, being lonely, like being worried. That is the kind of modesty that I was talking about, right? There is always like a little bit of reserve. It's not even like, you know, you were tight with Marvin Gaye. When Marvin Gaye sings a love song, it's about that, like, being enveloped in this sensuality and, you know, you're tied in to Marvin, right? Mm-hmm. Yours are always about sort of asking a little bit. You know what I mean? Like like being there and sen- that kind of connection.
2: Well, love to me is uh, it's the greatest subject. It's the, it's the most powerful emotion that we can possibly experience. Uh, love is the ruler. You see, even people... I'll use bigotry as an example of this. People who are bigots. They hate other people because they call themselves being protective of those that they love. I'm going to protect my race. I love my race. I'm going to protect my race. I love my people like me and so on. And so love trumps hate every time. See, and uh, so love is the most powerful emotion that we can experience. And if I'm going to write, I want to be in the ballpark with something that's going to be interesting to people. And love is all, whatever face it has, however it presents itself, it's still powerful. It's probably the most hurting thing you could feel and the most joyful thing that you could feel. It covers the gamut of emotion, and it is the most powerful one that we could possibly experience, as far as I'm concerned, as people. because it just trumps everything. You know, you 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 love somebody and people say, you know, well, you, you, you shouldn't love that person. You, if, if there was a button, nobody would ever love anybody because you wouldn't want to take that chance. You don't want to get your heart broken or your feelings hurt or any of that, you know? So I just keep it to myself. Just be with this person, but I don't love them. So. But love makes you do foolish things, <laughs> you know, so. It's just all powerful, and um, I I like presenting that if I can, because, like I said, it has any face you can think of. Sadness, happiness, hurt, joy. It covers all that.
1: And you in your life have had experience really not just with love but with really messing up love. I mean, like you have one of your kids was with someone who wasn't your wife. Your wife ended up, your first wife, Claudette, ended up breaking up with you or the two of you broke up yeah you know there was a period in your life where you were using so much that you basically messed up your relationships with everybody in your life yeah um especially me yeah mm-hmm. uh, so it's not like it's not like love has been a smooth an easy thing for you?
2: No, I, I don't think it's been a smooth and easy thing for anybody who falls in love. For well, anybody, who, anybody who loves anything or anybody, is not a smooth, you know, it's not smooth going. Like I said, and, and I think if it is, if it's just, you're just smooth and everything is all right all the time, you're not in love, you know? Because when you're in love, you know, you care about that person, you care about what they're doing or saying or being, or any of that, and nobody's perfect. So, you have to go through all that in order to withstand love, in order to, to cope with it, in order to cope with the person that you love, or have them cope with you. You, 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 you have to experience some negativity involved in it, because it's not going to be smooth if you're really in love, you know. Now, it can get overbearing, and you can kill love. And especially with women, you know, a woman can take a man who is a derelict. She can go down on Skid Row and see a dude and something about him that she likes. And he hasn't bathed in two months and he's scruffy and homeless and all that, and derelict. And she'll take him home, clean him up, because she loves him. And she'll clean him up and be with him and love him. And then he can get to the point where he is the CEO of IBM. And she don't love him no more. It's over. It is over. Okay, so love is like that.
1: Did that happen to you in your life?
2: Not exactly like that, you know. I I think that I I was the one who screwed up more so than, you know, Claudette. Uh, I know I was, and I and I I I searched myself to find out why, because she's only been loving to me for my whole life, still today. You know, like I said, today is her birthday, and. You know, I'm married to somebody else now, but we still have a great relationship. You know, but I I I screwed up with her because I was young. Gosh, I married her when I was 19. I thought I was a man. I thought I was I'm a man. I'm getting I'm gonna get married because she's in the group we're traveling. I'm a man. I'm 19. You know, that's a joke. (laughs) I wish one of my kids would have come to me when they were 19 talking about getting married. That's a joke. You know, but I did, and she was my girlfriend from the time I was 14 years old. You know what I mean? So. When it, when I started, you know, getting out into the world and all that, I just guess I was too young to cope with it or to know how to deal with it. And so I screwed up. And um, I, I, I admit it, you know, but, um, you know, that's love.
1: When you were using coke in the 80s, I mean, you got pretty close to... The story that you told just now, the theoretical story that you just told right now about somebody getting found on the street by somebody— you know 5 years ago maybe charlie wilson was in here a great singer yes and charlie wilson was very literally living on the street for yes a few charlie's years. my brother
2: i know that man i know you know i've been following charlie man since so the gap band
1: right and yeah. you know his his wife you know works very they're very very much partners yes like that was their story that right? was their story absolutely and you know i couldn't when when i was reading about you using in the late 70s early 80s like, I couldn't help but notice that parallel. I thought, Smokey did not end up that far from that situation. Like, if he hadn't gotten dragged to
2: church one day,
1: that could happen to Smokey Robinson.
2: It could happen to me, or I could be dead. Yeah, because I, I was I was strung out, and, 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 and I never... Uh, see, uh, drugs are so sneaky, and they're so unassuming. You know, it's like uh, people, especially people who... Considered themselves to be too strong, like I did. I'm ego tripping. I'm too strong for this. This will never happen to me. That kind of stuff, you know. And I'm you, just, you were like, like a
1: grown adult. Like it's not like you had been using for decades. And you know I me, mean, man. You had you were a grown adult who who started as a
2: grown adult as and a, it got out of control really fast. Absolutely, and that's what I tell people all the time about it because I speak everywhere now. I speak at churches, rehabs, and. Gang meetings in schools and everywhere. And I talk about the drug thing, man, because people think that, you know, drugs are something that, you know, you just uh, like uh, take take for instance, people who say, well, you know, they come to the schools and they're giving drugs to our kids. And so our kids are not stupid, you know, like some strangers are going to come to them and say, hey, kid, try this. And they're going to say, yeah, you start doing drugs with your friends, with the people you love, who love you. You start because you trust them and they trust you. So you're passing these drugs back and forth and you start with them. You don't start doing drugs with a stranger just comes off from nowhere and stuff like and people have a mythical thing about that. Well, you know, if they, if they this person had not come along. No, no, no. You start with your best friend, with people that you've known all your life. You start with people you trust, you know, and that's how sneaky drugs are. And if you open that door, they're going to come in.
1: You're Smokey Robinson, Smokey. Which means your public persona is, you know, if people think of Smokey Robinson, they think about the sweetness of your singing. They think about the sweetness of your songs, the coolness of, you know, Quiet Storm. They think about the relaxation of cruising. You know what I mean? These feelings of kind of gentle love. But that could be a lot to carry as an actual human being um do you feel pressured to be that in the world?
2: No man, I really don't yeah yeah see I think that when you flow naturally, I just flow like that man i i i you know i'm I'm a people lover, and I just flow like that i don't I don't have to pretend or it's a burden for me to be who I am or anything like that I just I am who I am, and I've been this person all my life.
1: Do you remember the campaign song that you wrote for your friend, Naomi, who ran for class president? Mm-hmm. How did the song go? Uh,
2: uh, well, I was in uh, junior high at the time, and it only went to the ninth grade. And it said, hey, hey, A's, I say that today is election day, and I hope, feel something, and I pray that you vote for Naomi. Cause Naomi was our girl who was running from our class, you know, so yeah. And um, and Aretha Franklin's brother Cecil, and a guy named uh, Floyd, and a guy named Michael Fitzgerald. We we had a group in junior high school, <laughs> and uh, we sang it, and she won. <laughs> so, yeah.
1: Smokey, I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you for thank you coming very much. It's a I real really honor appreciate to get you. To talk to you.
2: Thank you so much,
1: Smokey Robinson, folks. His new album is called Gasms. Let's go out on one more song from that record. This is Beside You.
0: Beside you That's where I want to be Forever I'm like a soul lost in the river Searching for A helping hand
1: That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here in my home, I have been thinking about the great Sinead O'Connor, uh, who was a staple in my home growing up. I have an Irish stepmother and a father who loved soul music and The intersection of those things was the courageous and incredible Sinead O'Connor. And um, look, so many people have said so many things about her. I I only wish I ever could have had her on this show. We we tried many times. Um, And there there just have been none greater than Sinead O'Connor, an absolute hero to me. and. And uh, I'm so happy that she's been so deeply appreciated, um, even if it is in, in the wake of the tragedy of her passing. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is composed and provided to us by the great Dan Wally, DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Our thanks to The Go Team, our thanks to their label Memphis Industries. Our special thanks this week to NPR's Standards and Practices Managing Editor, Tony Cavan for confirming that we can say the title of Smokey Robinson's latest album here on NPR Unhappy. without bleeping it. I that might sound sarcastic, but I'm I'm so sincerely grateful <laughs> for the folks who handle standards and practices at NPR. It is always fun and delightful to bring them a conundrum like that one, and they're always so great. Just know there's there's good folks looking out for your ears at NPR. You can find this week's show on YouTube, on Twitter, and on Facebook, where we share all of our interviews. Tell somebody about it if you liked it. Or if you heard part of it, you listening on the radio, you didn't hear all of it, um, go to NPR.org or MaximumFun.org, search for Smokey Robinson, or just uh, find it on YouTube and share it that way. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Yes, beside you